Well, uh, we return again to the letter of 1 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, let's open up there. Today we're in chapter 3. Chapter 3. We're going to be covering the first seven verses. And then as we do uh, here at Living Water, if you wouldn't mind standing as I read the Word of God aloud. Picking up at verse 1 of chapter 3, this saying is, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his, his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up and conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of, by, thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into the disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask his blessing on our next few minutes together. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us another opportunity to worship you and for providing me with an opportunity to share what I have learned from your word with your people. Lord, we recognize that we're here today solely because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished so many years ago on his earth through his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. We ask that your Holy Spirit will speak to each of us today, including me, Lord, through your word, enlighten our minds and change our hearts. Help us to make wiser choices in selecting others, but also make changes in our lives so that we might live a life that resounds to your praise and glory from those who are watching us. If we've committed any sin, would you please pardon us? Cleanse us, Lord, and especially me, so that, Lord, if I have displeased you in any way, I may be a vessel that your spirit will use today as a tool to minister to your people. I ask these things on the behalf of this group of believers and I pray that you bless all of our sister churches today as they are seeking to hear your word and serve you all around the world. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So Carissa Beard was uh, finishing up helping her daughter pack because it was the end of the semester uh, and they were preparing for the summer, and she was in the dorm room with her, getting her daughter prepared to come home when her husband, who is the pastor of First Baptist Church in Theramont in Maryland, texted her. Uh, it was a Sunday night last year in May because the report about what was going on with the scandal in the SBC convention had just dropped. And she had a chance to read it. And in her 
interview with the New York Times, she said this about the report. It is every bit as bad as I expected it to be. So last May, just about this time last year, God posted a third-party organization uh, at the behest of many church members launched an investigation into allegations about misbehavior among church leadership that implicated some 400 pastors and youth pastors in some 700 incidents that occurred between the years of 2000 to 2019. Sadly, the leadership committee over the Southern Baptist Convention intentionally engaged in a massive cover-up out of self-protection of the denomination. In the words of NPR, the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee mishandled allegations of sex abuse, stonewalled numerous survivors, and prioritized protecting the SBC from liability. In an interview with Russell Moore, when he was asked a question in the interview for him as one of the ones who was outside looking in and being part of the leadership, trying to get these things addressed, what was the most shocking thing to you about reading these 288 pages of misconduct? Russell Moore said, well, one of the things that shocked me most is after all these years of being told when many of us would ask, how can we do a database that would actually track predators to make sure that predatory preachers aren't going from one church to the other? We would always be told by these people that we couldn't do it given our polity. Now we know in this report that they had a list that they were keeping in secret. Not to protect the abused victims, but to protect themselves. And that at every point, the question was liability. How do we protect ourselves from these claims? By keeping them quiet. And in the language that was used, the amount of motive being revealed there, I honestly don't know what to call this other than criminal conspiracy. Sadly, as I read those words, there are some of you in this room today who have suffered something similar to those incidents in this report, or you have been injured in some other way by the misconduct of a church leader leader who has chosen to give himself over to his personal desires and the temptations of Satan in his life. See, these leaders' behavior disgraced not only Christ, but his church. And as the report reveals, the church is still in need of godly leaders. Hard as it is to believe, here we are a millennia later, when Paul sent the letter to Timothy to address a similar issue in Ephesus, and we're still confronting that same issue despite our advancements in technology. Paul said to Timothy, This I charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 
By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. See, the church at Ephesus had a problem, bad leadership. And as the report reveals, so does the church in America. Now, what we can piece together from Paul's letters to Timothy indicates that these leaders were not only teaching false doctrine, which we'll see later that Paul ultimately says that the source of this false doctrine is none other than demons themselves. But it was also that their lives were just as immoral as their doctrine. We see from the letters that they engaged in different forms of sexual immorality. They did not carry themselves in a respectable way. They exercised no restraint when it came to the use of or consumption of wine, and we might put in that category alcohol. They did money for, they did ministry for money instead of for, for God. And as we see in the letter, we'll find out they had a very low view of marriage. And so what Paul does here is he crafts for Timothy a picture of the type of man that should be serving in the role of leadership in God's church, just as he had crafted a decision or a description of love for those who were in the city of Corinth. Here we're talking about an overseer, an elder, or a shepherd, all those titles pointing to the same position. In essence, what he tells in these seven verses to Timothy is this is the kind of man that you want to be looking for. Now, Dr. D.A. Carson notes there's something remarkable about this list, and that is that there's nothing really remarkable about the list. The qualities that we see here were respected not only in the church context, but in society in general during their day. And as we read through the New Testament, we discover that for the most part, these are qualities that are asked of all Christians, that we should all seek to strive to possess in our lives. And I think that's the reason why church leaders are encouraged to be models of Christian behavior for the community of faith. It's not that we're doing something different. It's that, hey, we ought to lead the way in showing what it looks like to be a Christian. Now, by preserving this letter for us, it, it might be reasonable to, to suggest to you that God wants you and wants me to know what his standards are for leaders so that we can select them, encourage them, and hold them accountable as they serve the Lord's church. And of course, I realize this applies to me because I am serving as one of the leaders here uh, in this local assembly. Today, I only have one point to share with you, and it's simply this. We need to prioritize character when we're looking for a church leader. We need to prioritize character when we're looking for a church leader. Now, as you know, this has great relevance to us because we're currently in the search for a worship pastor. We're in the process of seeking to bring on new elders to our elder board. And so as we get into this list, we're going to realize there are lots of things that we have to cover. And so for the sake of memory, I, I want to put all these things that Paul says because he just kind of shoots them off rapid fire in the text into five categories. And, and what I want to do is use your hand as a device to help you remember what qualities we're looking for when it comes to selecting leaders in God's church. So let's start with your thumb. 
Since God has gifted you when he designed humanity with an opposable thumb, it stands out when you look at it from the rest of your fingers. Similarly, we're looking for men who stand out because they have high moral character, just like your thumb stands out from your hand. I'm not here saying that they're perfect, but they exemplify what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Notice the way Paul phrases it in verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. Now what he does here, and the commentators now have most taken it this way, is he fills this definition of above reproach with a variety of explanations to give us a feel for the kind of character requirements that are needed to serve in this role as an overseer in the Lord's church. Now, what's interesting about the list, different to how we often select leaders, is we look at resumes. Paul looks at something else. His focus is on the character of the person as opposed to the skills that he brings to the church. Now, he, he does mention a skill and implies another, but his main focus is on the character of the person. So let's open up this treasure chest and see what's inside. The first quality that we run into is he is the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, as you might guess, as we normally do when we run into text, there's always some problem in the text. And the first phrase we run into is a problematic phrase. Does this require a church elder to be married? That is, if you're not married, then you can't be a church elder. Uh, is this a refutation against polygamy? Was that what was going on? Does this mean a church elder cannot be divorced or remarried? So you must know that the universal church has held different positions. The early church thought of it one way. Some other churches parsed this out different ways. But most commentators today, in light of other things, have settled on what they call the faithfulness view. And it simply says this, that if a man is married, then he is faithful to the wife, to his wife, and to the Lord in that calling. If, however, a man is single, then he is faithful to the Lord in his singleness. This means that he's not a man with a mistress on the side. He, he's not the kind of guy who flirts with women, and most women in this room know when a man has moved from a compliment to engaging them in flirtation. And he's not the kind of man that when a woman flirts with him, he encourages that behavior because he has his passions under control. As one pastor put it, as I listened to as he was giving a talk about marriage at uh, Liberty Convocation, he said, he's the kind of man that when he's looking for a good time, he calls home. I see somebody just got that. That was for the men in the room. <laughs> See, we realize this is, this is important because failure in this area has brought scandals to ministries and brought them crashing down. Some of you remember Jimmy Swagger, 1988, and as more recently in recent years, the pastor of Willow Creek, Bill Hybels. It'll destroy a ministry. But he is to also be sober-minded. Now this quality pairs up well with another quality on the list. Notice in the text where it says, not a drunkard. 
And by putting these terms together, we get the, the picture of what Paul wants to paint here, that this is a man who's able to think clearly in his judgment because his judgment is not impaired by the overuse or addiction to a substance. In their day, it was wine, or we might say to some, alcohol. In our culture, we could probably add some other substances that would impair judgment or clear thinking to this list. But a church elder has to be able to think clearly or soberly if he's going to be able to help others in their walk with Christ and overcome their issues. He can't be having addictions in his own life if he's going to be helping others get out of addictions. The next two words on the list are qualities we have come across already in this letter. And Paul has stated these in relationship to women. And now he says, in the same exact order, and applies the exact same two words to men who are leaders of the church. He says, not only are these good for women, but the men need to have these as well. The first one is translated here as self-control. Elders need to exhibit self-control. Now, for most of us who are Bible readers, recognize that this is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. See, the elder must be able to rein in various desires, as we've just seen, but also he has to be able to rein in and have control over his emotions, such that the kind of life that he lives, which the next word gets at, is he has a respectable manner of life. Because he has inward control, then the outward display is a dignified deportment. Scholar Robert Yarbrough explains that this man takes his role in church seriously with a focus on the task, and he's not a person who demonstrates impulsiveness in his decision-making. And as such, by living in that kind of way, he lives the type of life that others can admire. He goes on to say an elder should be hospitable. One commentator explained it like this. Hospitality included taking in trustworthy travelers. And this was a, a huge quality during the ancient world because they didn't have the same modern conveniences that we have today. So in my years here at Serving at Living Water, this is one of the character qualities that Pastor Mike and his wife, Kathy, uh, in partnership with her, have excelled at over the years. I have watched numerous times how he has opened up his home to complete strangers to let them stay with him uh, for whatever period of time they needed to stay. And then while they were there, he treated them with family care. And that's exactly what this text is getting at. And Pastor Mike is about to do that yet again. That's the kind of person. He's open to the love of strangers. Paul continued to describe the qualities of an elder. Here he includes character traits that need to be avoided. Not just ones he needs to possess, possess but ones that need to be avoided. Notice in the text what it says. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Let me put it plainly. He's not a bully. He's not the guy who's going to punch you in the mouth or pull out a firearm. If you say something he doesn't like or you make him angry. Nor is he the kind of guy who might do that, but in a relational way where he'll use his position and authority to intimidate others to get what he wants done in the church. He's not the kind of person who picks fights with others, whether that is verbally or physically, or insists on that it has to be his way. See, he's not a man who is ruled by his emotions or his ego. He may be 6'5", weigh 240 pounds, be solid muscle, and have a black belt, but he deals with people with gentleness. 
Now, the word that's used here, I'm told from scholars in Greek that that it's really hard to translate this word. One person even said, this is one of those Greek words that really there's no English equivalent for. You you can't find one word to bring this over because it it conveys such a a type of graciousness in the way that this person handles others. Scholars Bill Mounts tries to give us a feel for the word when he writes. It it, it means being generous in treatments of others, which while demanding equity, does not insist on the letter of the law. Uh, An overseer who is gracious does not insist on his full rights, but is rather willing to rise above injury and injustice. Uh, It was a failure in this area that led to the scandal of the renowned ministry of Mark Driscoll, if you remember, that has produced the the well-known popular broadcast, which we referenced before the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. See, failure in this area can also wreck a ministry. Paul writes that an elder of God's church cannot be a lover of money. So in December of last year, in the middle of the month, the U.S. Attorney's Office indicted Pastor Evan Edwards and his son Joshua on six accounts of fraud. The website says that they had conspired to commit bank fraud and committed bank fraud by submitting fraudulent PPP loan application to the FDIC-insured institution on behalf of their ministry known as Aslan International Ministry, which was a a, a nonprofit corporation or entity that has religious services uh, for servicing the community. Uh, In the loan application, uh, the defendants significantly overestimated the number of employees and average monthly expenses that they really had. So they claimed in the report that they had some 500 employees and that they had, on a monthly basis, over $2 million worth of payroll expenses. And because of this, these false uh, loan application reports, they received in money $8.4 million dollars. Now, what's interesting is what they sought to do with the money. Instead of paying their employees, they sought to put a down payment on a multi-million dollar home for their family. How do you think this kind of behavior impacts unbelievers? As God in his word has said in another place, I believe this kind of behavior encourages people to blaspheme the name of God. And that's the reason Paul says that kind of person who loves money and that's what they're out for and that's what's motivating them, they cannot serve as a leader in God's church. Brothers and sisters, the first thing that Paul makes clear here is above all else, an elder must be a man of high moral character. That brings us to the second thing. I, I, you probably noticed in the list that I skipped one thing, one quality, and I want to highlight this one separately because it refers to a skill that he must possess. The skill is that he must be a skilled teacher or, as Paul puts it, able to teach. Here I want to use your index finger to remind you of this quality because for often when we're looking at things and we want to point something out, we use our index finger to point those things out to others. And in a similar way, 
an elder must be able to point people in the right direction by using God's word and teaching it appropriately. Now, here in this text, Paul doesn't unpack it. But when we come to the later of Titus, when he's dealing with the earlier church, he does more to unpack this phrase. So I want to go to Titus for a moment and see what he says there about teaching. That kind of gives us an idea of what Paul might have in mind as he writes of about a similar situation with, with different church leaders. Titus 1.9 reads, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict. So there are three things here we can draw out from the text about the teaching role. One, he must be committed to the gospel and to the word of God. And we understand from Timothy, the letter to the second letter to Timothy, that he, he must be a student of God's word. Right now, there's an influential pastor by the name of Andy Stanley who's currently being brought into the spotlight again because of statements that he's made which seem to indicate that he no longer is teaching a biblical view of marriage. Paul says that kind of thing can't be happening with a church elder. Two, from the text, he must be able to communicate to others. And lastly, he must be able to correct those who fall into error. See, God intends for his church not to be led by businessmen, but to be led by skilled teachers who are committed to teaching his word. An elder must not only have high moral character, but he must be a skilled teacher. Let me move on to our middle finger, which most of us in our hands is the longest finger. You know, when you, for most of us, some may have had it, I don't know, cut off or something like that. So, well, for most of us, your middle finger is the longest finger. And in a sense, in the way when you put it together, uh, it, 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 it leads the way out. So that's the way to remember it. He needs to be a, a good leader out front. Uh, as we see uh, in verse four, he must be a good leader first, though, in his family. The text says, before you let him lead God's church, look at how he's leading his family. Specifically, look at his relationship with his children. Do they submit to his leadership? And when they err, does he correct them in a way that still preserves his dignity? Or does he do things that are less than respectable? If he does not have children, does he manage his life well? And how does he handle those under his leadership, whether that is if he has a position of authority at work or he's the leader of a small group? How does he treat those people? See, Paul makes home management a prerequisite for church management. Why? Jeremy Ryan explains here, in both spheres, he bears the primary responsibility to help those under his care grow up and live together in harmony. Both parenting and eldering are about guiding people toward maturity within a community context. We see the rationale in Jesus' own statements when the Lord said this, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So here's the rationale that comes out, and we can put it in a question like this. If he's not leading one family well, why in the world will we put him over multiple families? 
There are two other observations about this text I want to make here about this verse that I don't want to leave just yet before we move on to the next thing. For the first has to do with the word care. Care. It lets us know the kind of leadership that an elder is to provide. So this past Friday, for those who are not in the medical field like myself, May 12th was a holiday. It was International Nurses Day, which is held in honor of Florence Nightingale. Uh, she is remembered for her care that she gave during the war to her patients with saved numbers of lives, as well as uh, she was the one who pioneered many of the practices that led to what is today known as modern nursing. One article said this about her. She spent her hours in the wards and her night rounds giving personal care to the wounded established her image as the lady with a lamp. And that's the kind of picture that we get with this word. If you want a biblical example, you would find it in the story of the Good Samaritan where this word is used again. And that's most likely what Paul has in mind here. It's a word that comes from the medical field that was used in there. It's this idea that, that elders are to care for the church in the way that medical personnel care for those who are ill. It's a sensitivity, a, a seeing about the needs, a, a concern for the welfare of those who are under his care. But there's another observation that's in the text that we don't want to miss, and it's this. It's a reminder to us as church leaders. Notice what it says in the text. Notice how Paul describes it. He says, care for God's church. What Paul wants to remind Timothy and all those who sit in leadership roles is that an elder must always be mindful that no matter how much he sacrifices to serve God's church, this church, you do not belong to him. It was the Lord Jesus alone who shed his blood and redeemed you, and as such, you are not mine. You don't belong to me. You belong solely to the Lord Jesus. And one day God is going to require that I give an answer for how I've treated you as his people. Brothers and sisters, this church does not belong to any pastor on staff. This church belongs to Jesus if it is a church. And we must remember that. An elder must have high moral character. He must be a skilled teacher, but he also must be a, a good leader. That brings us to our ring finger, which gives us the next major quality. Now, generally speaking, we don't take newborns and marry them off, at least not in our culture. I'm not talking about prearranged marriages, but you don't put a, you know, let them walk them down an aisle or anything like that. We generally wait until children reach at least some physical maturity and mental maturity. Now, now, I know some parents today might question the mental maturity even when their children are getting married <laughs> because of the choice of the person that they chose to marry. But, you know, nevertheless, it's some, some form of maturity. We, we generally wait till they have that. And so the ring figure reminds us that an elder must have spiritual maturity. Notice what the text says. Paul says, not a new convert. New convert? That's a new baby in the family. And just like we wouldn't marry off an infant, we don't put a, an infant in a role of leadership. Paul warns that if you put a person who's in infancy in faith with too much influence over the lives of others, it will often lead to pride. And that is a danger because that's exactly what happened to the devil. And he has fall, fallen under the condemnation of God. An elder must have high moral character, be a skilled teacher, be a good leader, and be spiritually mature. 
Lastly, the text tells us that an elder needs to have a good reputation with those who are outsiders. Now, to remember this quality, simply as the last finger is our pinky finger. And the way we remember that is that it's on the outside of our hand. What does an elder look like in his reputation with his neighbors and co-workers? What do they think about him? How does he act in public arenas such as sporting events? So a recent study released last year by the Barna Research Group indicates that pastors' credibility in society is decreasing. While in the interview they reviewed several people, they often got a higher review from people who were church attenders who gave pastors a higher credibility mark. But when asked by people who don't attend church, they had a very different opinion of the credibility of pastors in society. And then after looking at this, one of the researchers said this about that result of getting something vastly different from outsiders versus insiders in the church as the credibility of pastors and society. He says, yes, there are cultural headwinds that have changed the social standing or cultural power of a pastor, but we have made a mess of things too. From small country churches to uber mega churches, many pastors have been found to be bullies, hypocrites, alcohol abusers, and womanizers. The crisis of credibility is a symptom. The misuse of authority is the root cause. Brothers and sisters, the reality is that as I've read in this report and given you several examples, the problem is that we have allowed people to be in positions who don't have the character for that position. Professor Mount shared a story about this, what it looked like when he talked about this text. He talked about a friend of his. Uh, who had invited uh, someone he had known uh, to church. And it was a lady, and she had come to the church. And when she showed up at the church, you know, she was sitting down in the service like you're sitting down. And uh, for them and theirs, uh, they have, like, well, where I grew up at, where the pastors and, and church leaders sit up front on the pulpit. And so she looked up on the front, and so she nudged a friend. And she said, who's that guy right there, sitting right there at the front? And they said, oh, that's our, that's our senior pastor right there. She said, oh, okay. So she got up and started to get her things to walk out. And the friend followed out and said, well, you know, what's going on? Why are you leaving? And she said, I was at a game with him just the other night. And the way that he acted at the game, and he's the pastor of your church, I can't sit under his teaching. I have to leave right now. See, we need elders with a good reputation with outsiders if we're going to seek to engage the community with the gospel. Because this is one of the ways that the devil, Paul says here, traps the church and hinders the gospel from going forward. How does he do it? He discredits leaders because they have bad reputations. Because they have bad reputations, no one wants to listen to them. See, an elder must have high moral character. He must be a skilled teacher, a good leader, spiritually mature, and have a good reputation in the community. Let me give you an example in closing of what this might look like when a pastor is doing a good job. So many years ago, John Maxwell had taken over a church from the founding pastor. The church was Skyline Church, and the pastor was Orville Butcher. He had been the founding pastor. And for most of us, if you've ever been in a church transition where the, the previous pastor who was a founding pastor uh, was beloved by the congregation, pretty much anybody else who comes in, you're just not going to be liked. Because everybody generally 
likes the guy who was already there. And Dr. John Maxwell encountered the same kind of sentiment from some of the members of the church. They didn't appreciate the fact that their beloved pastor had, had retired and this new guy was taking it over. One of the members of there was a guy by the name of Harry Mitchell. And, and Harry didn't want to have anything to do with uh, Pastor John at the time. Uh, when he would preach sermons, you know, all he had was negative comments. Uh, when he would make any changes, he would gripe about how and why he made the changes, and ultimately it was a bad decision on Pastor John's part. And if you're a pastor and you're in the congregation, you kind of get a feel for who's not on the team, you know, who's always antithetical to you, always has something negative to say about everything you say or do. You, you kind of get that feel that they don't seem to like you that much. But that becomes pretty clear pretty, pretty quickly. And, and because Pastor John was a very observant guy, uh, he had noticed that Harry had a problem with him. So one day he, he asked his wife, hey, you know, what's, what's the problem with Harry? Like, like, like what's going on? Would you mind, like, sharing me? Like, have I done something to offend this brother? And so his wife confided in him. She said, look, my husband loved Pastor Butcher, and you have re replaced his beloved pastor, so uh, he, he's not going to like you. So Pastor John called up here and said, hey, man, would you mind if we just sit down and have coffee together? I'd like to talk to you. Would that be okay? Harry, of course, agreed. And they sat down, and Pastor John took some time to have some small talk with him first. And then at one point in the conversation, he leaned in, and he said this. Harry, I have a question for you. Would you mind just taking a moment and telling me about your relationship with Pastor Butcher? As soon as he said that, Harry lit up. Oh, he was excited to talk about all the years and the things that Pastor, Pastor Butcher had done. He talked about how he had married people in his family, how he had buried people, how he had baptized family members, how he had been there when there were crises in the family, and how he had shepherded them and walked them through those crises in his life, and how much he loved him. Now, when he finished sharing all those stories about Pastor Butcher, Pastor John simply leaned in and he said this, Harry, I have to tell you, I agree. Pastor Butcher was and is a great leader. And I believe that you should continue loving him just as you do today. And he deserves all that love. But I have one more question for you. After you give Pastor Butcher all that love, if there's any love left over, can I have it? <laughs> Harry was speechless. Pastor John had reached his heart, and in that moment he realized what he had been doing. Both men started to cry. Harry got up, walked over without being asked, and gave Pastor John a huge hug. And he became involved in the life of the church for years to come and a huge supporter of Pastor John. 
Brothers and sisters, we need to prioritize character when we're looking for a church leader. We're looking for men who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe wholeheartedly in his death for sinners and his resurrection from the dead, who are being changed by his Holy Spirit through the word of God and the community of faith because they're seeking the glory of God and not their own reputation. That's the type of man that God is calling to lead his church. But he's also calling you to be that same type of person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the challenge that it brings to us that though you loved us while we were far from you and in a state that did not look like Christ, you're in the process of changing us and conforming us to his image. And by your power, by your word, through your spirit, in the community of faith with our brothers and sisters, you help us to become disciples of Jesus Christ so that the student might become like the teacher. We ask, Father, that you would transform us, give us wisdom as we choose and place leaders into position as a church body. And when leaders err, may we as a church, like those members, stand up according to your word and say, hey, that's not right. We ask, Father, that you help us now as we partner together as a church community to share our resources so that we might also support your work in the world so the gospel might be proclaimed. Thank you for those who have given to the various ways that you have afforded through technology. Thank you for those who are going to give now. And I want to thank you for those who might right now be in a season of life where their obligations have not allowed them to give. But it is in their heart to give. Would you bless them so that they might be able to do that? We thank you for allowing us to serve you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.